This is John Quinn, and this is Law Disrupted. And today, we're going to be talking about the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences and the Oscars and the legal issues that the Academy faces and associated with the show and the Oscars. We're recording this on March 4th, and the show is March 27th this year. And that means what we call it here, Oscar season. The nominations came out a few weeks ago. The members are reviewing the films. They have an opportunity to now to cast their their votes, and we'll all hear the results on the show on March 27th. Today, we're going to be talking with Chris Tabak, who is a partner at Quinn Emanuel Urquhart and Sullivan, and I guess myself also, because Chris and I have both represented the Academy, done legal work for the Academy for many, many years. I was for over 30 years, the general counsel of the Academy up until about two years ago. Chris and I worked hand in hand in representing the Academy and advising the Academy on on legal matters. Of course, the things we're going to be talking about today are only matters which are public and well known. But it's been a fascinating client to represent, wouldn't you say, Chris? Absolutely. It's one of the highlights of my career since I've been at the firm, for sure. And we've both been fortunate enough to be, a few years ago, were invited to become members of, non-voting, I should say, sadly, members of the Academy, but which does mean we get access to and have the ability to view the nominated films during this time of the year, which is a lot of fun. My wife and I spend a lot of time watching the films Absolutely. in the evenings. I don't know if you do that as well, Chris. Uh, I try to watch as many as I can, for sure. And uh, I've got my favorites this year, so... <laughs> What is your favorite, by the way? I, I, I like, I'm partial to Belfast, the ones I've mm-hmm. seen, but there's been a few other good ones. Yeah, my favorite is Drive My Car, which is a Japanese film that was nominated for Best Foreign Language Film. And very unusually for a foreign language film was also nominated for Best Picture. It's a fantastic film and I encourage anyone, anyone to see it. So what is the Academy? The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences is a California not-for-profit corporation that was organized uh, back in 1927. The background to it, as I remember, Chris, was that it was an effort to deal with some labor labor strife that was in the industry. There were some issues. They're trying to bring people together. Yeah, I think there was there were conflicts between the different branches and and it had become uh, a big enough business, the business of motion pictures, that there were strong proponents. Mary Pickford was a founder and, and figures prominently into it. Uh, Charlie Chaplin, Douglas Fairbanks, you know, all big, big early founders of the Academy. The membership now is it's in the thousands. I know it's I don't know the exact number. It used to be around 5000, but I'm sure it's several thousand more than that now. But it's always been divided into branches. So there's a writer's branch. There's an editor's branch. There's a actor's branch. uh, There's a director's branch. Chris, how does someone become a member of the Academy? So, and I'll I'll speak to this both from my knowledge as a lawyer, but also my dad happened to be a member of the actor's branch, but. uh, Oh, you should tell people who your father was. My dad was an actor, Vic Tabak, uh, a character actor for most of his career. He had a TV series in the seventies and eighties, but he did well over a hundred motion pictures. And in the early seventies, he was invited to become a member. And the way you become a member is another member has to sponsor you and nominate you to that branch for consideration based on the, you know, your overall portfolio of work in the branch that you're being nominated in. So you can be a member, for example, as an actor and as a director, uh, or as a screenwriter and as a director, for example. But uh, the other way to become a member is to win an Academy Award. 
and that's, then accept the that's invitation. Maybe, that's probably a harder way. It's tough to get into the academy, but getting the award, it's it's probably the toughest route. It, it is, but there, are, you know, a couple of people who won them have not accepted it. Woody Allen famously declined yep. to become a member, and Orson Welles before that. So the academy is governed by uh, a board of governors, which has representatives from each of the branches. Sort of, sort of functions as a, a board of directors, and then there are also officers of the academy, and that's that's kind of the structure of the academy and what it is. The academy's arguably the most valuable assets the academy has, which underpins everything. I would say, are the intellectual property rights to the Oscar statuette and certain trademarks. Uh, Chris, would you explain what those are? The statuette itself, you know, was designed by a by a man named Cedric Gibbons, and that he's, design. Yeah, I think he supposedly drew it freehand, impromptu, <laughs> on famously on a napkin, maybe That's at right. some kind of academy uh, event where he had the idea. Well, we should have a statue. We sh we should have some award that we give out, and it's sort of a machine age. Uh, I don't know if you call it art deco image of a human being holding, guess what? People, people I know remember <laughs> what the Oscar statue is holding a very big sword, a crusader sword. Anyway, that's a, I, I sidetracked, Chris, you were explaining no, not at all. what yeah. those key intellectual property uh, assets are of the Academy. So that statuette, the image of, of what is now known as the Oscar, and there's a whole story behind how it became known as the Oscar which I'm sure we'll talk about, but, and then the other is that, you know, the name, the Academy Awards, the name, the Oscars, uh, and those are, are trademarked and, and, uh, and they are intended to be associated only with this now world famous uh, awards presentation that goes on every year. They're actually called the award of merit. That's actually what the title of the Academy Award is uh, in according to the Academy's own bylaws. Uh, Chris, we can't pass that over. I've heard a couple of different sure. versions about how, uh, the word Oscar, Oscars, how that came to be associated with the award and the statuette. What have you heard about the origin well, of that? You know, I mean, I've heard the, some of the famous stories, and I don't think there is an answer, by the way, but some of the famous stories, the one I, I remember most prominently is I think Betty Davis said that it reminded her of, of her former husband, Oscar, I think something like that when she got up on the stage. But I'm not sure that, that, that there's a recording of that. So I don't know that that's actually yeah. memorialized anywhere. So I think yeah, that's why there's a legend. Uh, yeah, I mean, the one I heard uh, and that you, you, you read about sometimes is that a woman named Margaret Herrick, who I think was the original, I don't know what office she held, administrator of the academy, that she said, oh, that looks like my uncle Oscar. <laughs> so, but it's lost to history where they- Which is uh, amazing for something <laughs> as famous as the Academy Awards. Right. <laughs> that how it got to be called the Oscars is, is not really knowable. So you, we have the we have this statuette, which is a copyrighted work of art. We have the trademarks, Oscar and Academy Award, both plural too. Oscars, mm -hmm. plural, Academy Awards, plural. As happens uh, many times, it happens now. We know from our practice in uh, cryptocurrencies, people start working on a project without realizing how valuable it might become, and they don't necessarily document things really well from the beginning. And of course, when they came up with the Oscar statuette, when it was designed, nobody really anticipated how famous and valuable it would be. And in fact, it was given out 
to people who received the award of merit uh, from 1929 to 1941 without any copyright registration and without a copyright notice on it. And it was an amazingly intimate affair in the old days. I mean, it was held at the Biltmore Hotel. Big celebrities. It was an, a night out, but it was just the just industry people. As we came to learn, this became uh, the fact that this statuette was being given out without any copyright formalities being complied with became a issue because the Academy does uh, seek to enforce uh, its intellectual property rights. It sends out uh, cease and desist letters. It takes actions uh, against infringers. And there was one infringer who was selling counterfeit Oscar statuettes by the name of Creative House that the Academy uh, and we on behalf of the Academy brought an action it was called the the infringer was named Creative House. And we brought an action the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences versus Creative House for copyright infringement and Creative House defended the case on the grounds that the copyright in the Oscar was invalid. Why? because it had been given out from 1929 to 1941 without observance of the formalities under the copyright law, and that this, in effect, operated as a general publication, which would defeat any claim to copyright. And Creative House was basically making Oscars, the kind of Oscars you see in souvenir stands, places like that. I mean, that's sort of knockoff product they were making. Exactly. And once they, they raised this defense and the case could not be resolved, we were put in a, the Academy was put in a position, made the decision that we're going to go ahead and try this case. And we're going to resolve this issue once and for all about the validity of the, the copyright in the Oscar, given that it had been given out those for all those years. And we tried the case. I actually tried the case in federal court in uh, downtown Los Angeles. And much to my dismay, we lost at the trial court level. Uh, I didn't think you lost, John. I didn't think you ever lost. Just <laughs> no, we lost this one. It was a, it was a very uh, sad day to have my name, our firm's name attached to, at the time, uh, the loss of the copyright in the most, arguably the most famous statuette in the world. But we did appeal and we appealed to the Ninth, the, uh, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And uh, our position was at the trial court and on appeal was that this was not a general publication. It was a limited publication, which is a doctrine that's recognized in the law of copyright, that when you give something out to a limited number of people for a limited purpose, that does not work a general population that would vitiate the claim of copyright. You can think, for example, if an author writes a book and you know, without copywriting it, gives copies of the, uh, the script or the pages uh, of the work in process, a draft, and gives it to uh, members of one's family or gives it to an agent or gives it to others to get feedback. You give them galleys or uh, whatever. Uh, there is law that says that's not a general publication. You're giving it out to a limited number of people for a limited purpose. And the Academy's position was that this was given out to a limited number of people, i.e. winners of the Academy Awards, the awards of merit, and for a limited purpose, to recognize their achievement in motion pictures that year. And uh, happily, 
the Court of Appeals in a resounding opinion upheld that position and reversed the trial court in very strong language saying that this was, uh, that it is one of the most, you know, valuable, recognized, strong copyrights of its kind in the world, which the Academy has then in future subsequent litigations against infringers has been able to make very good use of that very strong language. So now as a result, when you see those, you know, world's greatest dad statuettes, things like that, they're, they're, they're different. They're structurally different than what the actual Academy Award looks like, right? Exactly. You know, the Academy looks at those, you know, obviously the Academy is not claiming a, mon a monopoly on uh, all gold images uh, of <laughs> human figures, Yeah, but only those which are confusingly similar uh, to the copyright. So that leaves space for, for other types of trophies that have gold human figures on it. So that, that's kind of the background to the intellectual property. But of course, that intellectual property is so famous because of the show, mm -hmm. the annual award show, which really funds the Academy's operations. You know, the Academy now has a museum, it has a library, it has archives, it does good work around the world, uh, promoting motion pictures and awards for you know, young screenwriters and uh, support for you know, motion picture festivals around the world. But almost all that money comes from the rights fee that the Academy gets from ABC for a long time now. It used to be other mm -hmm. networks, but for many, many years now, it's been ABC, the contract to broadcast the Academy Awards. And yeah, I mean, it's been transformative for the organization, right? I mean, it, it's turned it into an economic you know, juggernaut, the ability to, the ability to broadcast it and to have the level of interest, worldwide interest that the awards have generated over the years. Yes. And, you know, of course, I mean, that's challenged now to some degree, all the award shows uh, are challenged. Uh, that's a whole nother subject about the popularity of the uh, broadcast now and where that show is going, but it's been a huge, it has been the economic engine for the Academy and all the good work that the Academy does. So we as lawyers for the Academy would, uh, whenever the ABC contract got, came up for renewal, that was a very important job that we got involved in is uh, negotiating uh, that contract with the network, with ABC. Yeah, and there's, I mean, obviously you have to take into account all manner of considerations when you have a big contract like that. You, you know, there was a year, 2020, where there was some concern that the awards show might not happen at all and that, kind of contingency, although no one could have ever foreseen a pandemic, um, you know, that has to be built into contracts too. And, and, and so those are all things you have to think about when you're, when you're negotiating a contract for a singular event like the Academy Awards. There were a few suits that were brought as a result of the uh, nominations. There was one suit that uh, arose out of the disqualification of a film that had been nominated for Best Foreign Language Film it had been submitted as a Uruguayan film. And I can't remember exactly how we learned. I think it was an anonymous tip so far as I knew. Yeah, I think so. That the Academy was informed that this was not really a Uruguayan film. It was a Brazilian film. And, you know, by the way, sometimes figuring out whether, you know, what the nationality of a film is when you have funding from one source, a producer who's from one, one country, the actors are from a different country, the author of the script is another. 
that can be tricky. But in this case, it seemed to be pretty clear that this actually, if anything, was a Brazilian film, not a Uruguayan film. Mm-hmm. So after the, this film, purportedly Uruguayan film was nominated, it was disqualified. And uh, the people associated with the film uh, brought a suit challenging that uh, and, 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 and seeking and an by, injunction. Yeah, because by now, I mean, it, the, you know, have, being able to have tout the fact that a motion picture or an actor or an actress was nominated for an Academy Award or won an Academy Award is valuable, economically valuable. And so these people there have a real interest in making sure that if they can get a nomination, that they will get a nomination or that they're identified personally. And so they, people will litigate over that. And then there was one, there was a film called uh, Who's Afraid of Roger Rabbit that there was a suit over. Do you recall, you recall that, Chris? I do. In, in 1989, um, there was a dispute over an art director credit. And, and it's really, I think, the first of a series of cases uh, over the last 20 or 25 years where people have said that, hey, I should be credited as, in this case, the art director, in other cases, a producer, in other cases, something else, based on the work that I did. Ultimately, the, the principle that has evolved, and it comes from this Roger Rabbit case, is the Academy it, it really does get to decide, even though it may have an economic impact on a person that they aren't identified by the Academy as someone that's entitled to um, awards recognition, that they get the Academy gets to make that decision as to what the qualifications are for nomination. Right. And that's because it's an award. It's mm-hmm. an award to recognize an achievement in a field, an artistic field. I mean, there's case law that if it's a, if it's a contest, like, you, you know, you, when we were kids that you'd see on the back of uh, Cheerios boxes or something, you could clip mm-hmm. something out and you entered a contest. There are cases that are saying, well, that, that creates a implied in fact contract that the, the rules will be followed. There's something objective. If I actually have the best answer or the right answer, I, I can't remember the details of the cases, mm-hmm. but if it's, if it's a contest as opposed to an award, there's arguably a, a contract relationship. It creates contractual obligations. But that, the courts have decided, that is not the case with respect to the Oscars. Yeah, and so they have to sometimes make qualitative judgments. Where is this motion picture from? Was this person's contributions consistent with what we think to be an art director or in some cases, and there's other lawsuits like a movie, a lawsuit that in the nineties, I think um, about the movie crash. Yes. About Los Angeles, wasn't it? Or takes yeah, place correct. in LA. Yeah. Takes place in Los Angeles. And, uh, and there was some litigation surrounding that, uh, that case about whether somebody should be recognized as a producer and the Academy has a, a limit on the number of producers that will be nominated for any, any particular motion picture. Uh, and it, that person lost, <laughs> lost right. the lawsuit. Yeah, I think, I think I mean, if I recall right, the limit was you could have four people credited as producers. And this person, I think his name was, if I'm right, it was Bob Yari, uh, right. would, have, would have been the fifth. And his argument was, I was the money guy. I'm the most important guy. The film wouldn't exist, but for me. And he brought a claim that he should be credited as a, a nominee also. Yeah. Now, none of these cases went anywhere. Uh, no. In fact, just... there was even an antitrust case, if I remember correctly. Right. And I don't know, you know that uh, it goes back to before my time at the firm, but but I, I know of it. 
where it, it, it was it wasn't before my time. Yeah, I, I actually handled that case, yeah. an antitrust case. I mean, there is a rule, uh, interestingly, and this is kind of relevant these days that, and I, I don't think this has been changed. Uh, Chris, correct me if you know that it has been, that a, a motion picture, I know it was changed during the pandemic at least did, as, a, as a temporary measure, but a motion picture's first screening must be a theatrical screening. So films that are first on the small screen on television or other media are not qualified to be Oscars. And, you know, we're talking about antitrust claims. Of course, that's, you know, that's competition claims. And the theory here was that the Academy was essentially uh, this was anti-competitive, that the Academy had market power. It was kind of a monopolist for motion picture awards at the highest level and that this was an exclusionary market practice. The theory was something like that. It was excluding, um, you know, productions that debut on television. And that's, in that case, it was uh, uh, cable, I think pay-per-view. The Last Seduction was the movie. And, and that case was, was uh, dismissed as well. So the Academy has, uh, except for that one uh, brief hiccup on the copyright case relating to the Oscar in the trial court, the Academy has fared very well uh, in the courts where there's been litigation. So we, in the lead up to the show, it used to be that, you know, the Academy for uh, good reasons is uh, really concerned about who is in the room and who's in what seat. I mean, the Oscar show is ultimately seen. I've always heard the number, Chris, like by something like a billion people or more around yeah. the world, not necessarily live. Less live now, now that people can, can absorb that information, uh, you know, different ways. But that, yeah, it's a huge uh, television audience historically. And um, it's, as we all know from, you know, just the history of the awards, it's a prominent uh, forum for people to, to make, you know, public statements if they wanted to. Uh, and, and there's a or lot worse. of- Or worse. Speak, or, or worse. worse. I mean, there, there's always, obviously, there's a concern about security if, if somebody wanted to make a, uh, uh, you know, an act of violence, uh, one to call attention to something and do something terrible. Uh, I mean, it's a form that would get an awful lot of attention. So it's very important that the Academy knows who's in every single seat in that auditorium and that there's very tight security surrounding that. So the tickets are only released, I think it used to be like 48 hours before the show. Yeah, they're, they're, it still is right before the show. Uh, there's, you know, high level of securitization of those tickets now. I mean, certainly they've kept up technologically with, you know, all the ability to watermark them and not you know, serial numbers and ensure that the person who has them is the person who's designated to have them and they're individualized tickets. They're, they are not like buying a ticket to a baseball game for sure. I, I, I remember that there used to be, you know, you could get ticket brokers, um, but there were ticket brokers in Los Angeles who, uh, could get tickets, would sell tickets for an awful lot of money. And they would somehow get their hands on the tickets. Um, and the Academy, actually Academy employees uh, get tickets to go to the show. And there would be ticket brokers who on the day that the tickets were given out, they would know on the sidewalk outside the Academy building with wads of cash offering to buy tickets from Academy employees. And we brought a series of suits over, I think it took two or three years uh, 
against the ticket brokers. And I think it's fair to say that for some time now, it's been impossible to get you know brokered tickets on the market. Have you heard of any, uh, Chris? I haven't. In fact, I'll say um, that both the ability of technology to to secure the um, to secure the you know the to make the tickets not as easily transferable has really helped that. And but also we went on a bit of a legal um, you know war against ticket brokers to make sure they were on notice that these transfer of these tickets was illegal. And because it's a private event, it's not a public event, it's a private event. And um, that we would actually go after and sue ticket brokers for knowingly evading the non-transferability provisions that are on the tickets and have always been on the ticket. And and we'd get injunctions against them, permanent injunctions. I mean, they didn't really want to fight once they were sued. So uh, the Academy just said, you know, stipulate to an injunction, you'll never do this again. And I remember there was at least one broker who we caught doing it again. Um, yeah, yeah. And we got uh, several injunctions. I, I think got a contempt of court sanction against right. at least one of them. But the, that hasn't, you know, the fact that the uh, secondary market and Oscar tickets has been cleaned up, probably eliminated altogether, hasn't prevented people from still trying to get into the show. And uh, you have some experience <laughs> of that, Chris, because I mean, there are Quinn Emanuel lawyers uh, every year who are manning a security desk uh, at the show where, you know, sometimes citizens arrests are made. There's a police mm-hmm. substation there, people trying to get into the show. You, you see, I mean, and it's a wide range. And, it, and over the time I've been doing it for 20 odd years, um, every year there's somebody that tries to get in. Um, some years are more than others, but, you know, and it runs the gamut. Sometimes it's, a, you know, a misguided youth just wanting to see get close to the celebrities but sometimes it's somebody that's a little bit you know got some other agenda or maybe mentally ill and thinks that they can sort of get in because they've got some reason to be there uh and the when i say it's taken seriously i mean there are local and federal law enforcement agents all over the event there's a there's a, a couple of different perimeters uh and if you're caught inside the perimeter without a ticket you know, you're not supposed to be there. You will be brought to the police station. You'll be you'll be detained and you'll probably be arrested. And certainly you'll be questioned, usually by a Quinn Emanuel lawyer, in my experience. Um, so, you know, to figure out what you're doing there and how you wound up um, at the event, whether you got a ticket that was transferred to you or whether you got in without a ticket somehow. I recall that one year there was a guy uh, in the UK who had written a book on gate crashing. So he, he, he could get into any event and he actually held a press conference announcing that he was going to come to LA and he was going to gate crash the Oscars. Do you recall that, Chris? I do. There, there's been a couple people that made that sort of threat. And there's, uh, there was one that I was involved with who published a book about how he supposedly had gotten into the Academy Awards the year before and then was planning on doing it again. And he was arrested. Uh, and in fact, in that case, he was arrested, went through the prosecution process for reasons that I don't recall now. The city attorney ultimately didn't prosecute the case. He turned around and filed a lawsuit, which he promptly lost because you're not allowed to be at the event. And he was an uninvited guest. So oh, he probably sold some more books. <laughs> he probably sold a few books. Yeah, exactly. Right, so when, when you get your this is uh, not many people know this, but when you get your Oscar backstage 
before you're able to, I think, before you're able to walk away with it. Uh, one of the things that you're asked to do is to sign an agreement. Chris, that agreement says yeah. what? Colloquially, it's called the winner's agreement, but it's really a right of first refusal. And it's a very interesting aspect of um, the Academy Awards, which is an Academy Award statuette is given to winners uh, and it's conditioned upon their agreement that they won't convey it, sell it, put it out on the open market without offering it for sale to uh, the Academy for, it used to be $10, now it's a dollar, uh, that they, they need to sell it back to the Academy if they're going to sell it. And um, occasionally you'll see Academy Award statuettes that someone thinks that they can sell. And we've got a few stories that I can tell about that, um, where they think that maybe they've inherited it. Maybe they inherited it second or third hand. And they decided that they want to try and capitalize on it. Hey, I think I can get a million dollars for this statuette because it's a famous one. And so they could try to put it up for auction. We've had to deal with that a few times, both because that right of first refusal agreement, that winner's agreement, only came into effect in 1951. So there's, you know, 20 plus years of statuettes that predate that were awarded prior to that right of first refusal agreement. But also, again, people want to challenge that. They say, hey, how can you restrict my ability to, to sell this thing that you gave me? 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 50 years ago, or, or you gave or to my aunt. Or, or gave to my father or whatever. Yeah. So so what, what's happened to those cases that we've done? So there, we've had a pretty long history of success enforcing those, but the there's really two different ways that it breaks down. One is that winner's agreement is has been upheld many times. You sign that agreement. It's a restriction that's lawful. And, you know, you're, you're getting an, an award in exchange. The other aspect, the other way that this comes about is because you will occasionally see there are older statuettes that predate this that had been on the market. Uh, and you'll occasionally read articles about a sale of one. But by and large, if the person who was awarded that statuette was a member, and even if it was awarded prior to 1951, if they were a member past 1951, the Academy put into its bylaws that as a condition of being a member, you are agreeing not to sell any statuette that you have received in the future or you have already received. So a case in point, we had a, a trial, a jury trial uh, that I tried uh, that related to um, a couple Academy Award statuettes that had been given to Mary Pickford, founder of the Academy. She, she won an Academy Award in the 20s, and then she also received an honorary Academy Award in the 70s. And she had been married to another silent film star named Buddy Rogers, who also had an Academy Award. Mary Pickford passes away. Her statuettes go to Buddy Rogers. Buddy Rogers remarries. Buddy Rogers remarries. And his second wife, Beverly Rogers, now has these statuettes. And then she dies. And she puts in her will that she wants them to be sold for the purpose of funding a charity. And these are, of course, interesting, historically interesting statuettes because of their who they've been given to. Um, and so we had a jury trial over the enforceability of that right of first refusal as it related to these statuettes, since they had belonged to Mary Pickford, but they predated the right of first refusal. Yeah, that, that. that's really interesting. I mean, it's one thing if uh, it's Mary Pickford herself or somebody who actually received the award, 
but subsequent transferees years later. Uh, but the court found that that basically the covenant, the right of first refusal was still valid and in effect. It is. It's, it's an equitable servitude and it's a, a covenant that passes with the, uh, with the statuette itself, which is unusual, but not unprecedented. And it's, um, and it's, it, I will say the Academy Award is probably the best example of something like that, where that kind of restriction can really exist forever. Uh, and, and as a result, the Academy has been able to, to enforce its restriction on the sale of the Academy Award statuettes, which, by the way, isn't just a, a willy-nilly desire. The, the, the story that goes back to the 50s was that Sid Grauman, the man who founded uh, Grauman's Chinese Theater, he was a member of the Academy, and he had seen that somebody, a prior winner, had passed away and that somebody was selling or had sold a statuette uh, for some amount of money. And he just thought that, you know, this is an award of merit that we consider to be something you have to earn based on the quality of your contributions to the uh, motion pictures and not something that should just be an article of commerce. And so he was the, the um, instigator for the passing of that bylaw and, you know, implementing the right of first refusal, which with a few minor changes really exists the same way it did in 1951. So there's a lot else that goes uh, into the show from a legal standpoint. There's a lot of contracts to be reviewed, waivers from unions, deals with sponsors, uh, indemnities. And then we actually also got involved in reviewing the script. Yeah. You know, there are a number of things you want to look for in the script that relate to whether or not something's someone's there's actionable defamation, whether things parodies would be fair use just generally trying to ensure that the script doesn't get the Academy into any kind of legal problems. And of course they have guests, you know, who are often comedians and they'll maybe want to push the envelope. Pardon yeah, the envelope. And, 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 but, and a lot of times the script isn't followed anyway. I mean, yeah, exactly. People go sat, off script, sat in the audience for years and years and see people, uh, you know, ad libbing or stuff with, which was never in the, in the script and stuff that was in the script never, never makes it onto the show. I remember one year when Rob Lowe was the MC, there was a, a, a Snow White uh, skit episode, which from reading the script, you would have no idea that anybody could possibly object to it. But um, in the event, actually, Disney did object and said, this was our Snow White, this was disparaging of our Snow White and, and damaging. The story was that Roy Disney had wa been watching the show and was very upset and immediately called the lawyers. I always remember this because I was at the show uh, that night. And then later on that night, I was at the hospital. My wife was giving birth to my youngest daughter. <laughs> and, and this was before cell phones. And I was paged. And it was because Disney was threatening a lawsuit against the Academy claiming that was our Snow White. And, uh, you know, you put her in a very bad light on the show. And we did some investigation and learned that, well, Snow White actually goes back to the Brothers Grimm, by the way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and that particular skit uh, had been, I forget what it was called. There was a show in San Francisco that had been going on for years called uh, Beach Blanket Babylon. Mm -hmm. uh, which Disney knew about, they had apparently objected to, but then they continued to do it. And, you know, it was a, it was a similar kind of portrayal. Mm -hmm. So we thought that the Academy had 
defenses to the claim, but you know, very quickly. I mean, Disney did bring a lawsuit. Very quickly, the parties reached an agreement. It's confidential, but no money was paid. But it made for a memorable evening <laughs> for, for me well, for two for two reasons. It it, it almost seems unprecedented though that a studio the size of Disney, which by the way now owns ABC, which you yeah. know is now they're now now broadcast the show. Um, but the, a, a studio, motion picture studio of that prominence, would sue the Academy like that, given the you know net symbiotic relationship between them. Roy Disney was a powerful man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And now the the Academy now uh, just this last year finally opened up uh, the Academy Museum, uh, which is something the the Academy had been interested in doing for over a decade. I mean, people come to Los Angeles from all around the world, and and one of the things they want to do when they come to LA, they think about they think about Hollywood and the history of the history of Hollywood and motion pictures, and there really hasn't been a place for people to go and uh, learn about. Uh, the history of Hollywood and motion pictures in Los Angeles. Yeah, it's and, shocking and, that there's museums on almost every topic and that there wasn't yeah. in the motion picture capital of the world, not a museum right. dedicated to right. motion picture. And, and there, there are uh, film museums all over the world, but not in Los Angeles. But there is now an amazing museum on Wilshire Boulevard, a Lorenzo uh, Piana designed building. Uh, and that is really funded. It's uh, it's a separate entity. It's a separate not-for-profit entity. I think you were involved in organizing that, Chris, but it's really yeah. funded by the Academy and funded by the awards show. Yeah, and and it's uh, it's in the old uh, May Company building on Wilshire Boulevard. It's beautiful structure. Uh, Lorenzo Piana designed it, but it's also a terrific venue. I mean, it's just the, the, the articles on display and the interactive parts of it are, are really well done. And I think it's it's definitely the kind of thing that the Academy, I know, aspired to, uh, to leave its sort of imprint on something dedicated to motion picture arts and sciences. And I think they were successful. It took them a really long time and it cost a lot of money, though. So right. it, it's a nice, hundreds, it's a great project. Hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah. yeah. Well, representing the uh, Academy has been one of the high points of my career. And I know that's true for you, too, Chris. I very much Absolutely. enjoyed uh, being general counsel of the academy for over 30 years. Uh, the general counsel now is Scott Miller, uh, who was an a in-house lawyer at the academy, who was promoted to that position a couple of years ago, and he's a, a fabulous lawyer and doing a great job there. We still interact with Scott and represent the academy from time to time when there are, when there are issues. Obviously, the academy always gives rise to certainly interesting legal issues, and we've got a few right now. Um, and, you know, as as society continues to kind of figure out how motion pictures are going to survive, what they're going to be like in the future, I think the Academy is going to face different you know, challenges. And so definitely, uh, I think we'll hopefully still be the, the lawyers for the Academy when they when, when those maybe inevitably go to court in some form or other. Right. And they're, they're struggling with very fundamental issues like what is a motion picture now today? How do we watch motion pictures? Is it the same experience? Should it be treated the same? Those are issues the Academy is, is struggling with. As well, I would say is, why do we care about stars? Because, <laughs> you know, it was founded by, uh, you said Douglas Fairbanks and- um, Mary Pickford. And Mary Pickford. But still today, we care about stars. We care who's in it. 
you always ask that question, mm -hmm. who's in the picture? And all that is kind of wrapped up in what the Academy is about. And I've been speaking with my partner, Chris Tabak. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, John. You've been listening to Law Disrupted with me, John Quinn. You can sign up to receive an email when a new episode drops at our website, lawdisrupted.fm. If you enjoyed the show, please share a link on social media and follow at JBQ Law or at Quinn Emanuel. Thank you for tuning in. Well, wasn't that amazing? It was created and produced by podcast partners. They're really lovely people and rather good at all this podcasting guff. Find out more at podcastpartners.com. Thank you.